in a world where we're trying to like stop pregnancies and stop STDs and be careful and all this kind of stuff, what if the goal for humans isn't intercourse? What if the goal for humans is sexual pleasure and both people wanting the same drive so that we don't generate a society that has a Me Too movement because half of the species thinks the other half doesn't want it and they got to get it somehow. They either have to convince them or force them or no, 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 no. Both members of the species are the same animal. We are the human animal and we all have the same drive provided we are feeding the same nutrients to our brains. And in this case, it's dopamine to say, yeah, let's do that again. And serotonin to say, I'm satisfied. And um, I'm just going to turn the rest of this off so I can go to sleep or go to work or get some other stuff done. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am Nicolette Richet. I am your host, and I'm very excited to have you on today's show with Dr. Teresa Wood. Now, Dr. Teresa Wood is unlike all other doctors that I've had the pleasure of interviewing. She is revolutionary. She is a systems thinker. She is such a, has a creative mindset and sees the interconnectedness of absolutely everything out there. And she also questions the system that she is working in, which is what I love most about Teresa. And because of that, she is my go-to doctor in Whistler, BC. It's who I refer everybody to. And really, she is a uh, stand-apart doctor that really all other medical doctors need to regard, need to look up to, and need to emulate if we are going to change the face of Western medicine as we know it and make it something that can truly serve people completely and to bring health back to uh, individuals, but also back to our community. Now, Dr. Teresa Wood, she has been a medical doctor for well over a decade, but before she went into medicine, Teresa has a very interesting background on so many levels, but what we're going to be chatting about today is the work she does and has been doing for a long time as a speaker, seminar leader, a writer, a spoken word performance artist, um, and a sexologist. And I've never had a sexologist on our show before, so this is what's going to make today so interesting. Now, Teresa fully believes in food as medicine and eating real to heal, but this show takes a little bit of a different turn where we look at sex as health as well. And what does that mean? Because a lot of us eat well, we practice yoga, we exercise, we go to bed at 10, we get our rest, we are mindful, we show gratitude every day. You know, we're doing it all right. We have our practices in place, but there's one big area that is still not talked about as openly as it needs to be. And that's in behind our closed doors in the area of sex and intimacy in the bedroom with our partners, with our lovers, with you know whoever it is that we are intimate with sexually. So she is a family sexual medicine doctor and that's why I'm so ex excited to have Teresa on the show. She's just written a book and has a second one on the go and I cannot wait for it to be published um, because it is a book that is definitely 
definitely going to change people's lives. So really the theme of our show today is about making love to yourself. So you're all going to want to listen up. So excited to have Teresa on the show. And before we dive into that, just want to cover a few things. Uh, As many of you know, the Green Mustache, which is our collection of plant-based whole foods, organic restaurants and cafes that we have. Currently, we have five in Canada, in Western Canada, in British Columbia, Whistler, Port Moody, Squamish, um, North Vancouver. We were supposed to open our first of 10 locations in New York this year, but COVID definitely kiboshed that, but it's still going to be happening. Really excited to go to the United States and bring plant-based whole food there in the green mustache to the United States. But we're super excited to announce that we've now opened up a 100% organic that will never change. Those principles are always there. But we also have a grocery store now where we have all of our products. We have 110 plus different food products, but also we're bringing in beauty and home and skin products and cleaning products into the shelves as well. But we've opened up our zero waste store in function as of three weeks ago, and we now have our village location open. So if you're listening to this podcast and you are a local and you are in and around the area, please come visit us and support the opening of the green mustache. I should say the reopening of the green mustache. As well, something that I have reactivated is our coaching sessions as well. So our consulting sessions, which are three hours long. And this is where I work with you one-on-one and actually not just one-on-one, but I work with you and any family member you want to invite to your client consulting session where I teach you how to use food as medicine to regenerate your body and reverse your chronic degenerative disease. So the only illnesses I don't work with are ALS, Parkinson's, and certain leukemias. But for all other chronic degenerative diseases, I have worked with thousands of people around the globe. We can do Zoom calls. We can do Skype calls, any kind of video conferencing work. So anywhere that you are in the world, book a session so you can take control of your health starting today. Turn your kitchen into a healing pharmacy where you're going to use food as regenerative medicine to overcome your disease, cancel any upcoming surgery, get off your prescription meds because your body heals itself and you no longer present with the symptoms. So super excited to go back to doing those because I can no longer travel right now um, and do the corporate group sessions and do our richer work programs with the corporate groups, but happy to help you get over your chronic disease, get past it and through it so you can reclaim your life, reclaim your health and realize the potential that you were born with. So sign up for those today at nicoletterichet.com. I also want to let you know that just before COVID, we had launched our 22 million campaign. It's what this tattoo on my arm is all about. It's all about teaching people to use food as medicine to take back their health and reverse the chronic diseases and to do it using food as medicine. So we were supposed to, I was supposed to run from Whistler, BC, all the way to California, where I was going to knock on Oprah's door when I got there and where I was going to knock on Ritual's door when I got there so we can hammer out an amazing podcast to teach you all about uh, food as medicine 
um, hammer out an amazing Oprah soul session Sunday. That's what I'm working towards with Oprah. And so 22 million is still going on. We're going to be reactivating our fundraiser now that COVID's opening up and we're going to be setting a new date where I'll be leaving and running the 2200 kilometers from Whistler to California as part of our mission to help 22 million people learn about food as medicine and help them reverse their chronic degenerative diseases. So that is still happening. And lastly, if you know you just want to get to know what we're about, head over to nicoletterichet.com and check out all of our free resources, watch the documentaries, order the books, um, read our Eat Real to Heal book, download our PDFs and meal plans. You can do all of that. It's available for you. And then of course, check out what we're doing at Sea to Sky Thrivers. Dot com because that is our charity where we work with indigenous groups, physicians, and youth to also teach about food as medicine for reversing all of the leading killer chronic degenerative diseases that do not have to plague our society, but they are. And that's only because people do not know about the power of food to reverse your disease. So you know what to do, people. If you love this show, please share it with others. And remember, this show with Teresa, yes, we are going to be talking about penises, vaginas, sex, and intimacy. So if you have young kids in the car and you haven't quite braced those subjects with them, then you might want to listen to this show in private. Or if you're like me, I openly talk about this stuff with my kids at all times so that it's not a taboo topic ever. We just talked about it around the dinner table the other night with our kids and their kids' friends who were over and their moms, and it was awesome. We laughed until we cried laughing. Um, it was, you know, it doesn't have to be a taboo topic. So enjoy the show, share it with others, and we'll see you at the end of this podcast. Bye for now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and I'm very excited to have a dear friend and a colleague in the whole entire world of health here on our show, Dr. Teresa Wood. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It is exciting having you here for so many reasons, because you are a mother of twin boys, young twin boys. You are an athlete in our community. You're active and you're, I always see you biking around. You're also a medical doctor in our community as well, which is a unique community of Whistler to be a medical doctor, I think. Um, we can speak more about that. And also because you, in addition to, you know, seeing patients and supporting them, you have this whole, whole other side of you that is all about looking at sexual health as an opportunity to really leverage our potential in the world. So I'm so excited to chat with you about that as well. Yay. But because we are in the middle of COVID, I mean, this podcast will probably come out in about six weeks from the time... Um, we air record to the time we air. So let's just get that conversation out of the way and let's dive into, you know, you one day being on the Oprah and the Ellen show to talk about sexual health. Um, let's talk about COVID for a while. So how has it been for you, you know, being at home, isolated with the kids, trying to see patients manage just life in general? It's been most interesting. And, you know, I've, I've always, um, try to focus on resilience and optimism and try to look at the bright side of things. Um, the first two weeks were very hard with little kids. 
it was just spring break, but our kids are enrolled in programs. They're twins. They're six years old. They love to love each other and they love to try to kill each other on a very regular basis. So we were suddenly on lockdown with them in an environment where they didn't have their physical and social outlets. Um, um, by the end of the first two weeks, one of the twins is like, I usually get six hour break from him. and I have to have him all the time. I never even wanted a brother. So, you know, sibling rivalry has been huge for us. And then trying to find time to see patients, um, which we were suddenly expected to do online um, and with a rising mental health need. And I um, used to be quite involved with the mental health in this community. So um, some of my patients from before I went on sabbatical for writing my books this last year um, were seeking me out. And yeah, I had to figure out ways to get them kind of quarantined from me while we were all in quarantine so I could actually talk to people and it's been a lot but we've learned some pretty cool things like what it is about one guy that means he needs space and what it is about the other guy that means he doesn't really like to be alone and then how to work that together so really for six-year-olds there's been a lot of advanced emotional and spiritual <laughs> growth in a really short period of time and in some ways it's been good that they've had this time of forced um family time to sort that stuff out it's nice yeah no i it's the same in our household as well like with the three girls is that you know it, it makes a difference to have time away in the separate classrooms and the separate activities and with their separate friends and then we went through the same thing like the first few weeks were like continuous breakdowns and um and yeah it was wild I was like how are we going to do this if it's going to continue for like months on end let alone weeks on end and um but then there was a flip and then all of a sudden um everything something switched and they all of a sudden you know started to get along more I mean still definitely every day is like up and down but there was a switch and I am super grateful actually for the fact that they've had to work through just being together, which is probably the way it was like in the 1900s, kids lived on a farm and they only had each other and neighbors were like miles away. Right. So, and so then just going to the mental health piece, um, have you, like you've already, you've still been seeing patients online and have you been seeing them in person as well or how's that working? I haven't been seeing them in person as well because I was still on sabbatical planning my return to work oh, right. at a clinic that we had in town here. Um, as we were waiting for it to change hands and that clinic has closed its doors probably due to the COVID uh, things. So um, what I've been doing actually is seeing a lot of my colleagues who during med school relied on me for um, maintenance of their mental wellness on the team. And then during this, I had sent some messages out and said, hey, how are we out there? Because we're many of these are on the front line so I've been working with them as well as patients that I've known for a very long time who reached out to me um, for continuity of care with their mental wellness issues especially in the heightened environment I think some of the people self-isolating have been having a very hard time mm -hmm. and some of the parents of small children have been having a very hard time and especially uh, single parents which is a whole other thing because yeah. there's zero downtime for single parents and so 
yeah, I've been continuing to see those people online often after my kids are in bed at 8 p.m. Um, or if I could, you know, Kung Fu Panda 1, 2, and 3 have <laughs> me a few hours here and there to, to do that. And also some great conversations about Zen. So that was interesting. <laughs> That's, and what have you, have you seen, you know, people from the Zen perspective and really looking at it, you know, this whole experience is maybe even being a spiritual uplifting experience. Like what have you seen then that's been pretty remarkable? Oh, well, people, some people are very resilient and at least open it to the conversation of resilience. And I think in a time like this, you know, when we don't really even, I mean, I don't even know what I believe is going on. Yeah. And I don't know how you feel. We get so much information from so many different places. And one, one minute I'm on the phone with the emergency operating committee of our town because I may get called in to dress up in moon suits and see people at any time because I am a physician. I am trained at putting airways down people's uh, airway if they need that and that we may get called to action. So in some ways we are training for readiness and on the other hand there's so much information coming from you know people i know who live in china and people i know who live in italy and um and the news and the media and just you know the the people who, who are losing their businesses and you know conspiracy theorists and everyone yeah. we've got so much coming at us but what i feel is the earth the planet, the world has almost hit a reset button. And the opportunity of a standstill of everything we believe and know to be day-to-day -day life has to cause pause. Mm -hmm. And if we use that pause to ask ourselves what it is about our current day-to-day -day that we believe in still, and what it is that we've just had to go with, with the flow, because that's what's happening. And we've got this high speed lifestyle and we got to keep up and capitalism, 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 mm -hmm. and let's go, 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 go. So all of a sudden we're on standstill. The skies are quiet. There's no planes. You can't even get to your sick family member in another country who you would not have imagined not seeing before they passed and they passed. Mm -hmm. There's so much pain and heartache available and there's so much opportunity at the same time. I remember one of the first things my spouse said when we met and I was having a very hard time in med school with a certain situation and my spouse said, um, you know, there's an opportunity in everything. And sometimes the greatest opportunities come from the, um, the hardest challenges. and this is one of the biggest challenges we will see in our lifetime and the whole world is experiencing it simultaneously and that's incredible i feel lucky and blessed to be alive during this time and just so curious to see what's going to come out of it are we going to resume being the virus we have been to this planet that she might have been trying to get rid of for some time and talking to her planet colleagues and saying what do i do i've got this virus that doesn't seem to want to keep me alive <laughs> will <It's> true <laughs> right? right yeah um will we uh come out of this with a new view 
of ourselves, of relationship, of sexuality, of, mm-hmm. um, of parenting. You know, we've got this set up where we're parenting so hard because we don't have our siblings and cousins next door to help us breastfeed our twins. And we don't have um, the intergenerational support of the grandparents being able to see the grandchildren. And because we don't have any of that, we've you know, developed schools and daycares and places to send our kids and we miss them. We want to see them, but we're busy. And it's just, everyone needs to like, every household needs two careers and within the two careers, you know, women are uh, um, like mothers have not been replaced in their mothering, but they're still having full careers. So they're exhausted like so many women. Yeah. are still full-time moms, homekeepers, and spouses, and still having to have a full-time career. And the burnout in women is not what we did feminism for. So yeah. what happens when we pause? And I'm just hoping that other people are out there going, oh, how could we do this right if we were to hit the reset button, unplug the computer of the planet and plug it back in and see how we start over. Yeah, no, I mean, you hit so many incredible points there that I know so many people have been discussing and wondering and curious. And, you know, a lot of people have said that, you know, I really feel bad for saying this, but like, this has been really great for me. And of course, you know, there's people who have lost their lives. There are people who have not been able to see their family members, like you said, who have passed away during this time. We don't know if they would have passed away from influenza or their existing, you know, illness during the same time. But I mean, just the fact that they couldn't get to them. I think it's interesting to rethink, like I know we see on Facebook that my great grandmother's passing away and she's in Italy or wherever. And people before COVID would have hopped on a plane to go see her for three days just to say their goodbyes. Whereas now you can't do that, which is really the way it was a hundred years ago. You know, we didn't get to jet set all over the planet, um, you know, to try and be close to our loved ones. And it's, I mean, it's definitely a time of rethinking absolutely everything we do. And I know for myself and my husband, we said, we'll never return back to the way we were operating before this whole hit, this whole thing hit because it was craziness, the way we were operating with all our businesses and our children. And, you know, we were so in the, I don't want to call it a race because we weren't racing or competing against anybody, but it really just almost like a race for just survival, right? To be able to pay our mortgage, to be able to do all of those things. And we've just said, never again, will we do that? Like we want to actually close our store two days a week, like I, like it was in Europe for so long, nothing's open on Sundays. Um, you know, but we in North America with capitalism have, you know, we've overridden that there's no more church day Sundays or, you know, where everything's shut down. And yeah, so it's an interesting, um, it is a very interesting time. Um, going back to one of the things that you mentioned as well is like, you know, what do, you like you don't even know what you believe in around that. I just want to touch on that a little bit because I think for, you know, we look to our medical professionals, we look to our scientists, we look to, you know, reporters and journalists and everybody to try and say things about what is happening. But in reality, like, can we even, no, I don't want to say trust what's happening, but can we even know right now while we're still in the middle of it? Oh, that is such a good question. You know, my 
my first degree is in philosophy. And one of the things um, that I tried to remind my colleagues while we were learning medicine even is that facts, medical facts are constantly changing. And facts about um, what's happening in this moment will be constantly changing. Uh, I have the actual experience of one day talking on the emergency medical committee about one subject and the next day it being completely changed because on a day-to-day -day basis in a time of such extreme change and so much uncertainty, there is a constant flow. And I, I think you're right that it's not gonna be till maybe 10 or 20 years when we look back on this. I really loved hearing from the woman who had lived through the Spanish flu and then was living through this. Um, because in the midst of crisis or, or even just challenge or change, um, it's very hard to assess what is really going on. <laughs> and, um, you know, I turn in so many different circles to listen to my colleagues from University of Chicago, um, who are professors at various universities in the States, uh, saying what they think is going on and then listening to our Prime Minister um, or the President of the United States um, or, uh, you know, someone from New Zealand. Um, we can tell that there's a constant flux of information that is constantly changing people's perspective. And I think, again, it's almost like, do we really need to decide this right now? Yeah. You know, do, could we just do what we need to do and move forward um, and not, not get angry as much as possible, just kind of listen to those voices in our head like we do when we're meditating that just never stop. And instead of like constantly engaging with them, oh my God, could we just be like, oh yeah, okay, I know you're there. I know, I know. Okay. I'm, just, I'm just being right now. Yeah. And that's what I've really used my meditation practice to just keep coming back to like, can I just be in this moment and um, take the opportunity to be with my family because that's what's happening. Yeah. Take the opportunity to listen, to see, you know, in Whistler, we're so lucky because the wildlife's coming out. I don't know if you saw the images of Venice where the, the swans were in the water and the, you could actually see the fish again. I mean, I've been to Venice. That water is not clean enough to see yeah. a fish in. So it really gives us an opportunity to just see what the world is like without the constant influence of us and, mm -hmm. and, and question all that and let us form an opinion, you know, now because we, that's what the human mind does mm -hmm. and let us be open to letting that opinion change and just not get angry at other people who have a different one because of course they do. Yeah. I have a different one every 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> me Oh, me too. I went through the whole wave of, you know, oh, what is all this thing about 5G causing this? Like, and being a researcher, I'm like, okay, I need to dive into this research. Like I can't ignore it. I can't right. accept it but I need to dive into the research and see, is there any truth behind this? And if there is, I want to be prepared. But also if it's not true, I don't want to spread any information about it. So then it went from that to being like, 
well, was this virus already within us, you know, the whole entire time? And now it's just like, we're actually able to recognize it. And then going into, you know, was it human created to being, you know, like, was it even created in China? Like, did it not, maybe it started here and maybe I had it back in like November when we all came down with a, you know, a cold um, and we just didn't know, like it's, it's literally changing. And then now seeing in the research that you know, where they thought it was a respiratory illness, you know, there's a whole nother line of research that's come out because there's been time to go back, look at the autopsy reports, do more research, see this. And now they're like, oh, you know what? It could be actually a different type of treatment that we actually need, not the treatment that we've been doing to date. So, you know, within that, I'm changing as a, you know, as a researcher every single day, my opinion is, you know, fluctuating. But the one thing and I mean, what, so this is as our opinions are changing every day and as we're interacting with other people, like, do you have, like, how do you respond to people when people are asking you about this, especially being a medical doctor? I'm sure people are like, what's going on, Teresa? Like, you're the end all be all because you're a medical doctor. So how do you respond? Well, sort of, because a lot of people know me from my philosophy years and a lot of people know, you know, that I went into medicine kind of curious about are we doing medicine the right way with a questioning attitude from my philosophical background in in the way in which we apply science to bodies so um i think they're also looking those people are looking at me for the other side of things like are you questioning this so it's been very interesting i think the bottom line is while we don't know the thing that was clear is that it any virus so, you know, some people will say to me, well, what about cancer? Why don't we give this much attention to cancer? It's killing just as many people, et cetera, et cetera. What people didn't understand is that, um, or many people understood and others didn't, is that the, the bottom line was we didn't have the resources in the healthcare system to deal with a new virus that had the potential like the flu and others uh but it's but more potent more like a sars virus to um to have very serious effects and require many people to be hospitalized or ventilated um which now we're not even sure was the right thing but but to need hospital care we needed to protect the system the medical system that was not prepared for that many sick people at once we have a yeah. a constant supply of people with cancer who need care at, at at various levels of their cancer and we know what that is when you have a pandemic you have a spike of um just an influx of so many sick people at the same time um and sorry i'm getting a call <laughs> no worries um i don't know where you have disappeared to but um we've got a, a constant influx all of a sudden of um of an illness that is so strong that um it could take down too many people at once for our system and that's what i tried to explain to whistler the problem isn't you know how healthy we all are and whether or not we'll respond. The problem is like, it would take most of our medical staff mm -hmm. to handle one case. And then it would take the rest of our medical staff to handle two cases. If suddenly there were 10 cases, 
we ain't got it. and we don't have the the event support and and medical supply support so it was more of a supply issue for a new high demand issue that everyone is worried about and the supply includes the humans mm -hmm doctors, nurses, radiographers, lab technicians, uh, cleaning staff, who are all going to be exposed to this and whose potential for getting infected was high. And if the entire doctor team of a, of a town or a, a region were to collapse or nurse or even those certified for cleaning the rooms, um, we've got a problem that is unmanageable so mm -hmm. all of the stuff that seemed like this is way too much why are they asking me to do this um was because of the concern the supply demand um concern and it's big it's very big and we saw it happening in italy and we even saw some of it in eastern canada um if if the doctors start to fall there aren't very many other people who can solve the problem um, and the same is true for the radiographers and the lab techs and the nurses so and then their families like really oh, really were we really gonna um do i get mad that i have to stay home and only grocery shop at certain hours on certain days and i have to wear a mask for that when like one of my neighbors might be leaving her kids to like she might be going to die and her kids have no mom, like mm -hmm. where, where's the community in that? So I think it was really hard for people to assess since they didn't really know if they believed it or not. Exactly. Yeah. And it is, um, just like you said, you know, like if we have to deal with this, I, the analogy I've been using with people is that it's like you're a restaurant owner and you have a capacity to serve, you know, 60 people a night. And all of a sudden there's a tour bus coming into town and, you know, they're just like, they're expecting to come in and get served. And all of a sudden you're trying to serve, you know, like 200 people in a night and you haven't prepared the food. You don't have enough staff on call and da, 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 da. And, you know, but they are demanding it. They just walk in and they demand to be served. And all of a sudden you can't serve anybody. Nobody can help anybody. The kitchen's overloaded. All the staff get burnt out. It's, you know, and that seems to be, especially in a resort town where the service community, I mean, it, it's exactly the same as what it is for, you know, hospital staff. And yeah, it's, um, it's definitely an interesting time and it's an interesting time to reflect on other ways of living during this time. And that's where I want to segue into your topic in your book that you're writing. So let's leave COVID behind, even though we're still in the midst of it and we're going to be in the midst of it for, you know, months and maybe even years to come because it takes time to understand it. It takes time to you know, think about treatments. It takes time to think about, you know, also healing the planet um, or not healing our planet, healing our economy. The planet's healing as a result of COVID, but healing our economy. Um, and so that we're going to be in the midst of this for a long time. But I want to jump into this book that you've been writing um, on your sabbatical. And I know you're looking for a publisher right now, which is very exciting. And I can't wait for... Um, that to happen, which it will happen. So tell us about, first of all, 
we're going to be talking about sex people. Okay. So anybody who's listening right now, if you have kids in the car, just know we're going to be talking about vaginas. We are going to be talking about penises and we are going to be talking about a hell of a lot more than just vaginas and penises. Um, and it's actually all about the health of our, you know, sexuality and our sex life and all the other terms that I'm probably not even using correctly. But I want to, before I jump into that, I want to know where did you arrive in this space and with wanting to write this book and doing this work and how did that pair with you going to medical school? Like, did it happen before or after? Let's jump into the history of, of how you went down this path. Well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, you know, nobody really expects to become a sex expert. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, I think what happened was I always had, you know, uh, kind of a, a questioning attitude about the way in which we studied things and the way we applied science to human bodies. That was, you know, some of the approach of my philosophical training in college. And um, I remember just sitting on a bus one day, I think I was in Vancouver. I was a University of Chicago student, but I had taken a year to come to Canada and do some studies here which is where I was originally from. And um, sitting on a bus and there was like a, an ad for cream. It must have been like Nexema or Nivea or something. And there's a picture of a you know 30 something woman um, and a picture of like a, I don't know, 17 year old guy. And it said across the top, you know, women reach their sexual peak at 35, men at 17. Um, fortunately, there's Nivea or whatever the cream was. <laughs> And I just sat there and I stared at him like, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? And oh my God, we have a problem. First of all, there are no other species on the planet where the female species um, would reach its sexual peak almost at the end of the time it was able to procreate. Um, and, and at a completely different time than the male of the species. I mean, it's just not biologically sound to say something like that. So then I was thinking, well, where did they get this idea? Well, they got the idea from the research. The research was asking actual people where they, when they reached their, their sexual peaks. And so what we were having was an actual fact of the time in the 90s where women were reaching their sexual peak decades after men. And I thought, well, what's the problem? That's not a biological fact. So that must be a, an education problem. That to me was the sign that the way we were talking about sex or rather having a very difficult time talking about sex was um, creating an environment in our society where men were reaching their sexual peak at probably quite close to the normal biological functional time. And women were probably discovering their own um, clitoris and vulva area near the end and all of a sudden having this bam sexual peak right around the time that they were no longer having the sex drive so you think about evolutionary biology and you know that's not um that's not true of creatures who aren't thinking and teaching each other stuff um that probably shouldn't be taught so yeah all of that at bus stops <laughs> i had to i had to do something about this and I started talking about it and finally one day someone called me and they said, you know, Teresa, we're doing a, a health week at SFU. They're 
they're talking about um, the things we don't talk about. And everyone says, I got to call Teresa Wood because she's going to come and wow us about something that no one else will talk about. Totally. And I made a joke and I said, oh, I see. You want me to come talk about female ejaculation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and that joke changed my life because she said, that's exactly what we want you to do. <laughs> so... I was, awesome. <laughs> you know, finished my philosophy degree, doing my pre-medical studies to go into med school, and I started writing these these talks and um, and teaching people to unlearn the way society had taught us about sexuality, which is very procreation based, and very um, uh, and procreation based means intercourse based, and you know, even at the beginning of this thing, you said penises and vaginas, and that is the thing people think penises for men and vaginas for women whereas biologically speaking the analogy is clitoris and penis but we're right. not even allowed to say the word clitoris and if I put the word clitoris in my Instagram post Instagram won't even pass it around I because I said that word but we can say penis like even my little kids can say penis and get them to pronounce the word clitoris I mean mine can but can anyone else's so the thing is that anatomically speaking the analogy and the sexual pleasure pathway is virtually identical between the clitoris and the penis. And the clitoris is not mentioned in our sex education until very recently. And it wasn't mentioned in my medical school training. And I went to school in 2002. Wow. And we did not discuss the anatomy of the clitoris. And there was a woman at our at UBC, um, uh, Shauna Penhale, who was uh, doing, um, who had actually reopened the anatomy department to study exactly that because she argued that it wasn't in the textbooks the 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 nerves uh, for sexual pleasure were ending uh, we're going all the way to the tip of the penis <laughs> in those in the male and we're ending some nebulous spot inside the pelvis where surely they disappeared into the nothingness once they came and that is probably because historically um, that area called the pudendum known as the area to be ashamed of <laughs> wasn't allowed to be studied in women and wasn't allowed to be discussed among the men who were doing the research at the time. And it's nobody's fault. Mm -hmm. There was a prudish kind of um, um, education that was happening. And when we begged to talk to people about sex in schools, they probably got a big no. So they probably had to modify the conversation to say, look, we're just going to tell them how not to get pregnant. And if you tell people how not to get pregnant, then you also tell people how to get pregnant. And you also teach about intercourse and you actually have a conversation that involves penises and vaginas. Yeah. And the sexual pleasure of about 50% of the population. Well, I mean, it, just in everything you said, I'm like, have all these questions. And I'm like, so what is true? Like, does our libido like die off at a certain age or, you know, can it keep going? I hear all different stories. I hear stories of women who are just in relationships that just aren't functioning. And so their libido is literally gone. They get divorced and all of a sudden their libido comes right back up, you know, and they have their first orgasm at 50 years old, you know, with another person, whether it's a male or a female or whoever, but, you know, you discover yourself sexually in and in different ways with different relationships. And, you know, and I know for myself, my my husband, he signed us up for a tantric yoga workshop uh, a few years ago um, in Squamish. It was 
amazing. The first day was all about men and, you know, their sexual everythingness. And then the second day was all about the women, but you had to be there for both. Like, and then the next day was it about how we like, it's all combined. And I remember when she said like, do you know that you can have nine different orgasms? I like, I looked around the room and I'm like, I'm a pretty well-read person, but I didn't know that. Like I could name two maybe. And so then that just completely changed how I communicated with humans after that. Every chance I got, I'd be like, hey, have you had more than two different types of orgasms? Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be like, what are you talking about? There's two. I thought there was only one. Like it really just sparked this like incredible interest amongst my friends. And then sometimes it'd be strangers overhearing and coming in. And, and it was just amazing how it was the one topic that seemed to unite us all very, very closely. Like it was very fascinating. So um, let's dive into you know, what was that like when you were asked to go speak at these events and you'd start speaking about this? Like, what was the audience's, how did they respond to you? Oh, it was so fun. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, I started them at Simon Fraser University and then it kind of spiraled from there to various universities across North America and then also um, um, conferences and so on. But the thing is that people just it was so refreshing for someone to hear a conversation about sexuality and sex that um, that wasn't batting and wronging it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that was giving a perspective that was also not shaming anyone. It was, it was nobody's fault that only 50% of the population was having regular um, orgasmic outcome. And, you know, today we still, like, it's still a taboo to say that, like, women should have orgasm too. Some people don't believe women's orgasms exist. Some people think, like, feminists will say, you know, and I'm a feminist too, but the, the nice thing about feminism is there's all kinds of us, um, um, will say, how can you give people a goal that is not attainable for some of them? And my response is, to me, it, it's the only goal of a body that is created in a certain way to have it have access to all of its functions. So there's an area of our brain called the nucleus accumbens in the limbic system where we are rewarded for things that keep our species alive. So um, I'm gonna say some big words here. But... Do it, do it. We'll, we'll, we'll be able to put everything in the show notes and put links to explain it a little bit more okay. too. So don't worry, yeah, just By go big for words, it. I meant like, pee and poo. Oh. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, the things we're rewarded for in our brain with a big dose of dopamine are things like eating and drinking, peeing and pooing. <laughs> and I use those words on purpose because I don't really want to say urinating and defecating. I mm -hmm. think we need to just talk about things people are actually comfortable about. And sexual orgasm. So when you have a sexual orgasm, it doesn't matter which of the multiple genders are available out there today that you have. When you have a sexual orgasm, you get a dose of dopamine at your nucleus accumbens that tells your brain, yeah, do that again. Right. And the reason for that is if you didn't eat again, or if you didn't drink again, or you didn't empty your bladder ever, or you, you know, didn't empty your bowels, you would die. And if you didn't have something that made you want to have more sex and keep that sex drive alive, 
we wouldn't be here talking right now. Exactly. <laughs> there wouldn't be a species. Yeah. So our bodies of all genders um, are made to have libido. And the libido comes from, no pun intended, coming. <laughs> and so sometimes um, in a society where we are never even allowed to talk about masturbation, I really appreciated what you said earlier that it depends what kind of relationship you're in, whether or not you think you have a sex drive. Well, it often depends on whether or not you're having an orgasmic outcome, whether or not you have a sex drive. Now, there's a whole school of thought that I don't want to dismiss that says that women have a responsive uh, sexuality only. Uh, Rosemary Besson, who's a physician in, in BC and who's the head of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, is the one who, who penned that. Um, I just feel that in the queer community and in the, um, the women-positive community, um, where people have had to unlearn a lot of what they were told, they're, they're not having the same libido issues in the same way unless they've had sexual trauma or something else to explain it or some kind of surgery that has compromised their abilities, etc. So um, um, when you talk about relationship, the relationship that somebody has with themselves and now this is true both in terms of like the love you have for yourself as a person and the self-confidence and the the gentleness with which you approach your own soul and your presence on the planet and who you think you are um if you have love for yourself it is far easier to um have someone else love you mm -hmm. um and likewise if you have, um, if you know how to make love to yourself, which we aren't even allowed to talk about, this is Masturbation Month. How many people knew that? May is Masturbation Month. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know that. That's awesome. This is perfect that we're doing this. <laughs> and why is May Masturbation Month also interesting? The Surgeon General of the United States in 1994 was uh, one of the first African American women to be Surgeon General, maybe even the first. Uh, Justice Elders, and she was asked at the UN Conference on AIDS what she thought about using masturbation as a way to teach abstinence to people so they'd have another way of having sex that wouldn't involve so much um, sexual illness. And she said, yes, I think it's a very important part of human sexuality, and I think we, it needs to be taught. Well, guess who lost her job over that? This is 1994. We're talking about 20, 25 years ago. So um we it is so taboo to talk about that and and it was taught that you would lose your sex drive if you did it and the absolute opposite is the truth yeah if you can come to orgasm on your own you will build your libido back now how do you come to orgasm on your own if what you think orgasm is is something happening inside your vagina that someone else needs to provide well, it just isn't the case. The vagina is not analogous to the sexual pleasure portions of the penis. The clitoris is. Now, why we have an external access to um, sexual pleasure when, when the way to procreate is to have intercourse is not fully understood, but perhaps because we had the intelligence to include outer course with our intercourse if we weren't 
never taught it and told it was bad and wrong to even talk about the vulva and the clitoris. Um, but most of our um, most of our uh, nerve endings and uh, triggers for the neurotransmitters in our brains and for the hormones in our bodies that are going to get us to the place of orgasm and take us into orgasm are all surrounded like in high form around that clitoral head and the large cura of the clitoris, by the way, she's not small, um, uh, that, that do surround the entrance of the vagina, but only by about, you know, a couple centimeters. Um, and after that, there's no vibration sensors. So all these vibrators that are meant to go inside like a penis and somehow miraculously make you look like the women on Hollywood movies that are having some kind of orgasm from five thrusts of a penis like that is just not what's happening but it's teaching women and men that yeah the women on tv can do it so why can't i why can't we yeah. why can't you and it caught that's the goal setting that i'm concerned about and i see that actually a lot like even just amongst friends and clients and you know it's one of the things that they'll bring up is they're like why well, can't orgasm and I was like, well, what does that mean? Like that you can't orgasm, you know, is it at, at all like on your own, you know, through masturbation, through your clitoris, through your vagina, like, you know, and, and then when you ask that, they're like, oh, I can, you know, have an orgasm this way, but I can't have an orgasm that way. And it's true. Like with all the porn that is out there with all the television shows now pretty much showing everything it really, and I have three teenage, you know, I have two, well, two teenage girls and then one who's nine and, you know, but like the stuff that they see on TV, like I look at them and I'm like, is that what they're going to go into their relationships thinking they need to act like, be like, and achieve those same outcomes? And it's not true. And so I talk to my girls all the time, you know, and are you masturbating? Like, you know about, do you need me to teach you how to do it? And do you want me to show you some books? Do you want me to, you know, because and the reason I do it is number one, I'm not afraid to talk about it, which I think it's so important that mothers are talking to their children about this. But the other thing is that I know from friends that I have, they don't even know that they actually have three holes down there. A lot of humans, men and women, don't know that women have three holes down there. And I know from my daughters when they were young enough, they thought I was batshit crazy when I said that. They were like, no, there's only two. And I was like, no, no. And they didn't know which hole like they were peeing out of. They didn't understand. And I mean, when I had to draw the pictures and show them books and then they were like, oh, and they slowly came to understand it over time. My one daughter, I mean, I won't tell you which one, but you know, in case their friends are ever hearing this, but you know, like they're not afraid to use a mirror and check out and see what's going on down there. And, but, but if mothers aren't teaching them, who else is going to teach them this? Yeah. Well, and this is a thing that, that um, you know, mothers were people who weren't taught this. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. That when you asked, like, what happened when I started to give these talks, I mean, uh, I never gave them, I gave them to college students and, and older people, you know, all the way up to 80 plus um, people were attending. But I, I didn't give them to young people because I felt that unless the adults were on, on board understanding why I was saying what I was saying, they were going to get angry right? because they were taught that this isn't something we talk about. The physiology of female sexual pleasure is taboo. We don't talk about it. And by the way, lots of women don't have it. Well, that's not a coincidence. 
It's because we don't talk about it that yeah. they're not getting it. And because we think that thrusts of intercourse are going to cause pleasure that of course they cause pleasure, but are they causing the kind of pleasure that tells the nucleus accumbens do that again, or your species is going to die because that's the stuff that dopamine that you get after you empty your bowels, you feel good. And you, you do, feel, you do. Oh. And you feel good for a reason. You don't feel as good as sexual orgasm. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, but you yeah. feel good enough that your body knows to do that again. And you kind of need that. And so sometimes when I have a client who is in a relationship where like in the beginning, yeah, they were so excited. They could have an orgasm from a tiny, tiny amount of foreplay or maybe foreplay was the thing. And that's going to bring me to my book here in a minute. Um, as foreplay diminishes over time, because we're trying to get to this goal, which is mm -hmm. the more the goal I'm concerned about, which is the goal of intercourse, because that's what sex is equal to intercourse that's the mistake that's out there in our lingo because we want to get to sex we want to get to third base we want to get the home run we want to complete we are completing men's sexual pleasure often at the cost of foreplay which in my opinion is women's sexual pleasure because as soon as we stop touching the having outer course and start having intercourse and end it in about 45 seconds and leave the woman in a pathological need for cuddles that you then complain about later on. Yeah. <laughs> Cuddling because not because she's like totally into you because you just came inside of her. She's cuddling because she's still not done and yeah. you are. And she's like, Oh my God, come here. I'm more, more, more. Yeah. And you know, you're falling asleep. Now, a sexually satisfied woman looks very similar to a sexually satisfied man. She's going to be like, okay, okay, okay. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Don't touch me. <laughs> and yeah, sure. Maybe she wants some cuddles of infection, but she's pretty much either falling asleep or on her way to work like everybody else who's sexually satisfied. So yeah. I don't think that we have an understanding of what that looks like. And when I reinsert foreplay into relationships that are at that seven year itch or whatever year itch, and they're yeah. saying, she doesn't want to have sex anymore. I don't understand. And she's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not into it. I don't have a drive. I'm worried. I get to say, well, when was the last time you had sex? And they say, well, you know, we tried last week. And I'm like, okay, so who had a sexual outcome from that that would have told their nucleus accumbens that you need to have a drive for that? Right. Okay, one hand goes up. And when was the last time two hands would have gone up? In the first three months of this relationship, before we started getting, let's get just get to it. Let's just get to intercourse because yeah. that's what we're here for. What if that's not what we're here for? In a world where we're trying to like stop pregnancies and stop STDs and be careful and all this kind of stuff, what if the goal for humans isn't intercourse? What if the goal for humans is sexual pleasure mm -hmm. and both people wanting the same drive so that we don't generate a society that has a Me Too movement because half of the species thinks the other half doesn't want it and they got to get it somehow. Yeah. They either have to convince them or force them or no, 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 no. Both members of the species are the same animal. We are the human animal and we all have the same drive provided we are feeding 
the same nutrients to our brains. And in this case, it's dopamine to say, yeah, let's do that again. And serotonin to say, I'm satisfied. And um, I'm just going to turn the rest of this off so I can go to sleep or go to work or get some other stuff done. And if we had equal response between the genders um, on our way to work, we would have a more equal society in general. But we're not even allowed to touch on the fact that our human bodies are made the same. Go figure that the animal nature that we have is available to all of us. And if you just knew how to use it, you would be having a really good time with your partner. Women would be banging men's doors down for sex in the same way exactly. if they had the drive that men have, and and many of us do. Yeah, no, which is true. And I see it, you know, being a 45-year-old woman as well, it's just been interesting to reflect on my life, you know, from, you know, late teens to all throughout my 20s and 30s and how things have changed also around like with having children and sleepless nights and, um, you know, being working a lot versus times when you're not working a lot going through COVID. Like it's interesting to, to monitor your sex drive throughout all of these different stages of your life. And I'm so curious as well about, you know, what the next 20, 30, 40 years will look like. And also, what I'm really curious about from this conversation is that, you know, with my clients, when it comes to illness and, and disease and chronic health issues, you know, people are proactive when they're diagnosed with something, they're like, okay, tell me what to do, what to eat, how to make it, how to cook it, and then they're going to do it. And the same can be applied to our sexual health as well, which I mean, when you release dopamine in your brain, it's, it's not just benefiting you sexually, it's benefiting your entire health. 100%. So how do I, let's just talk about me, how do I take that same proactive approach as I move through my 40s and 50s and menopause and, you know, 60s when it comes to, when it comes to my sexual health? Like, how do I get on top of it? Because I want to have optimal health all around. Right. So what are some tips that you have there? Okay. Well, let me just start by saying, telling you a little story. Um, I must have been 27 sometime in the late 90s and giving a talk in Chicago um, to a diverse group of people. And in those days, we had email and landlines. We didn't have cell phones yet. Yeah, and, I remember. Uh, and at the end of the talk, I would always put my email, which was so modern of me, <laughs> on the on the board and said, you know, because obviously people who've had sexual trauma, which is still like one in four women will have some yeah. kind of sexual trauma in their lifetime. Those people need to have somebody with a positive sex outlook who can work through that stuff with them if they're going to be able to reach um, orgasm and or like have healthy relationships with other people. So um, I, I always put my thing my email up on the board and I'm doing this and I hear excuse me excuse me and I turn around and this elderly lady at the back of the room is like could you what do people who don't have email do and I and I just like I don't know what came over me but I I said well um for this case um what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my phone number up on the board and I put my landline home phone number up on the on the board and, uh, and I left it at that and I left that and, you know, various people come to speak to me afterwards. And I had her in my mind, like, oh my God, I'm in so much trouble. I'm 27 years old. And this lady who could have been, you know, 70 or 80, just uh, called out in one of my talks. She was there that whole time. And I just said all that stuff. <laughs> 
what was she going to do? And so um, maybe about a month later, I was back home in Vancouver and the phone rang and I picked it up. Hi, Teresa here. And uh, this lady said, you know, you gave a talk in Chicago uh, about a month ago. And I was there with my daughter and my granddaughter. And I'm like, oh, my God, I am so much trouble. I'm in so much trouble. She said, I just want to say that I'm 82 years old and I just had my first orgasm of my life because of what you spoke about that day. And I want you to know that you cannot let anyone stand in the way of what you are up to or, and that includes yourself because you're doing something remarkably important. I'm just so glad my granddaughter was there to hear it. You know, my husband would have loved to see this. We had no idea. Wow. And that is, <laughs> that is actually like, what a very cool human being. I know. I know. And wow. how that changed, that's where my career kind of made itself like settled in because I thought she just told me, she just called me and told me that I wasn't allowed to stop. And despite all the fear of what it means to be someone who's talking about sex in public and criticized and analyzed and, you know, people would come up to me and say, I just wish I could masturbate as much as you do. And I'm like, I'm in medical school. You think I'm masturbating? Exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to survive. Um, but people have formed all kinds of opinions about people who talk about sex and they can't help it because they need to put it on someone else so they don't have to have it on themselves. And that's my job. I stand up in front of a group of people and I try to wear all of the insecurities so that nobody else in the room has to, because we have so many, but I told you that story to tell you that she had, she had her first orgasm at 82. Those functions are still quite available right yeah. through to the end. Um, and um, the, the desire waxes and wanes certainly with our hormones, which is why, you know, uh, as a female going through the, the menstrual cycles, you know, we are wired biologically, the animals that we are to procreate. And so we do have a higher sex drive um, in many cases, although some people can really tone that down during the times when we will be more fertile um, and less so when we're not. Um, and then different people have, you know, the ability to use their minds to change those cycles, but also hormones during menopause will spike and crash and spike and crash. And those will cause extended periods of zero libido and high libido and all kinds of different libidos. And again, what I would mostly say to people is if you want a sex drive, you have to feed your sex drive. So either you have a lover who has fully learned how to get you to orgasm, which the best way to teach someone that obviously is to teach yourself that and, exactly. and then show them. <laughs> yeah. I often recommend masturbating in front of your partner at some point. People are so shy about it. It's such a bad thing to do. Yeah, loving yourself is such a bad thing to do. <laughs> no, it's gorgeous. And if, if um, people can learn from what you like, touched whether you like your breast touch or whether you like your belly touch or whether you like fingers inside because a lot of women do love the feeling of penetration um and some women you know ejaculate a lot of fluid and some women don't at all and some women stay very dry unless their mind's in the right spot 
So the second book I'm writing is actually about the fantasies and how our, our brain is our most powerful um, mm. sex organ, but it's also our mind is our biggest inhibitor if it's not on the right track and you can stop yourself from sexual pleasure in an instant if you think it's bad or wrong or if you think I'm not supposed to be thinking about that that is not a feminist fantasy <laughs> yeah I don't care how feminist or not feminist your fantasies are you probably formed them when you were about five years old and if they've been locked away since you were five then they're still five and it's time for you to unleash some five-year-old fantasies and go make love to yourself thinking about them so that they can grow up with you because those right. are locked. I'm so, glad that you brought that up because um, especially around how, you know, your brain is another sexual organ. And I mean, when Jocelyn Elders, you know, you spoke about her getting fired when she talked about, you know, saying like, well, if people masturbated and pleased themselves, then they wouldn't necessarily have to go out and, you know, and have intercourse with other people. And then this could also help to put a halt to these sexually transmitted diseases. Like, brilliant concept, but to be fired for, stay, for saying that, you know, in 1994, like that was not long ago. But also, I mean, we're lucky. I don't want to say we have new research because I know that there's research in this area that goes back hundreds of years, but a lot of it wasn't allowed to be published. A lot of it wasn't allowed to be spoken about. So we treat any new research on anything as being new, like never, it's as always like brand new genius concept that nobody's thought about. But I love, there's a great TED talk. We'll put it in the show notes. And it is about how you actually have your orgasms in your brain. Like you might think that you're having them through your penis, through your vulva, your vagina, your, you know, clitoris, you know, anus, wherever, but you're technically like having them in your brain. And I really love that research that's out there because it's true. And everybody can relate to that. We've all had wet dreams. We've all orgasmed in our sleep. And, you know, so we know that there's far more to it than just these, you know, organs that are down there versus this one be big, beautiful organ that we have up here in our, right. in our head. Yeah. 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 It's a really good point. Um, then the other part that you mentioned about what you were just saying as well is, um, just saying that if you think that it's wrong, then that's going to pre present challenges, right? To the outcome, whatever outcome you're going after, whatever goal you're going after. And talk a little bit more about that because, and, and also talking about the fantasy piece, I want you to touch base on that too, because I know a lot of women, you know, think they'll think like, oh, I shouldn't think that. I shouldn't fantasize about that. I shouldn't think about that. And how limiting is that for our sexual health? Right. Well, that is the whole premise of my second book. My first book's all about foreplay and why we need to stop shortening it to get to something else that isn't going to get women where it's getting men. Um, but the second book is about, um, you know, in our, in our way of thinking that something's bad or wrong, which many of our fantasies are bizarre. Like they so just, bizarre. And part of the reason for that is so... <laughs> So when, when you and I were growing up, like TV was kind of newish and, and movies were new and they were trying to rate them and decide what's allowable and what's not. Well, you know, it's, it's 2020 and you still don't see clitorises being touched on in the media. You see intercourse, but true, you know, you can't find me a good movie where the clitoris is being attended to. And so 
we have no idea what our fantasies are formed on, but we do know that many of them are formed in early childhood. So if something terrible happened to you or you witnessed something or you just watched TV, <laughs> which we all did, totally. anything that was deemed general was not allowed to show normal human affection and kindness and, and foreplay or even sex. Um, but you were allowed to cover topics like uh, sexual abuse and rape um, because they needed to be talked about. So, so many people from our generation have the fantasy of being raped or raping someone. And what are they supposed to do with that? If they don't do something with that and they try to hide it and they end up doing all this pornography stuff or they end up t like acting it out on a non-consenting human being, we got big problems. And I think we do have some big problems out mm -hmm. there. So if those fantasies were just acknowledged as like what your six-year-old brain did with that weird TV show about, I know my first name's Steven and the kid gets, you know, kidnapped and sexually abused for a decade before two before he figures out what's going on with him and escapes when the next um victim is is being kidnapped and he saves the next victim that that kind of stuff can form people you know people get formed from some of the most bizarre tv shows and i see so many clients who say no 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 i don't fantasize and that's why you know and i don't masturbate and i don't need to and i don't have a sex drive and i say Okay, so you don't fantasize. So if you were fantasizing, would you fantasize about this, 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 or this? And um, hands down, on the five that I usually name, some somebody goes, okay, number three. <laughs> right. And, and then I get to say, right. So it's not that you're not fantasizing. It's that you've locked that away in the area of, I'm not allowed to think about that. Therefore, I'm not thinking about that. And because you're not thinking about that and your entire formation of sexuality was around that. and you were told, stop sliding down the banister, stop sitting on your heels, stop, stop touching that. You locked all that, all that bad and wrong went together. So, so many people, women especially, because women have a very creative mind and very much need uh, their mind in some cases to be part of the sexual experience and the romanticizing. The things that they're trying to find romantic like a super loving partner <laughs> aren't what their like brain wants to hear about because their brain their their memories of fantasies and getting off from childhood are still five years old so what i tell people is is you, you need to unpackage that stuff open pandora's box mm -hmm. and look at what's inside and and find either be with yourself with that if you're comfortable masturbating um and if you're not try it with those ideas because that might be what's missing um or with a consenting adult just pretend you know like if the thing that's turning you on more than all the stuff your partner's trying on your body is just standing there holding hands it could be that you were five and thinking about holding someone's hand right, right. so obviously you can't go do that with the five-year-old but you could do it with your husband who's pretending to be five for the next 15 minutes. If that's what's going to get you going, I don't care what you think about. Yeah. What I care is what you act on. And I think we need to make a distinction. The most important conversation in all of sexuality is consent. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And, you know, to have consent, the person has to be a person. They have to be human. (laughs) They have to be an adult. They have to be mentally well. They have to be of sound mind. They can't be drunk. They can't be high. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying you can never have sex when you're drunk or high. I'm just saying that you're, you can't give consent in those yeah. environments. Um, and, and if you're not mentally well, you know, there's all of these things that if you are giving consent to something, then, then that thing is okay. And you're allowed to take back consent halfway through something if you're, you change your mind about it. And that's what's so nice about self-love. It's really easy to sort out if you're consenting to your own self, touching yourself in a certain way and whatever ideas are going through your mind. So I'm the kind of feminist that says, I don't care how anti-feminist your idea is. If it's getting you off, it's going to give you the dopamine in your brain that's allowing you to go to work satisfied and be everything you can be as an animal species called human on the planet. Yeah, Go for it it will evolve once you you delve into it and your your fantasies will grow up with you but if they're not allowed to come out then they're locked away at that age and they may not progress yeah and then you don't get to experience like you know what the benefit of that orgasm or a healthy sexual you know life and you know and i remember i was for i don't know how i came across it you're reminding me of a series of books i read like two decades ago by Nancy Friday. Did you ever come across that series? So we'll put the links in the show notes here. I don't even know if you can get the books, where you can get the books, but, um, and I don't know how I found it, but, and it was basically this woman who had put a call out. This is like 20, 30, 40 years ago. She had put a call out to women all around the world to say, hey, I want to know if women fantasize. Send me your um, fantasies. And so all these women submitted thousands of fantasies and she had to categorize them because there was like, she realized she's like, oh my God, there's categories and there's themes that are emerging. So like dozens of themes, she ended up having to publish, I don't know, three, four, five books Mm -hmm. on all of these women's fantasies. And I remember when I must've been in my early twenties when, oh, I know, I know exactly which girlfriend gave them the most conservative girlfriend I ever had in (laughs) high school gave me this book when I was about 21. And so, and uh, I remember just opened up this conversation between her and I, and I was like, we were like, this is remarkable, but it actually validated that we weren't crazy women who had weird, perverse minds. And we were just like, oh, this is normal. Like women fantasize about all these different things. So we read the whole series and I remember I would give it to friends as birthday presents and they were like, thank you. This has saved my sex life because it gave them permission to just except that we are human species and that we can have these thoughts for a period of time, one night, one morning, and that it doesn't define who you are. It doesn't make you wrong or, or anything. And so I highly recommend um, women read them because it's interesting because you could read through certain fantasies and all of a sudden it, it gives you a little bit of a tickle, a little bit of right. a twinge, right? And you're right. like, oh, oh, why am I feeling this way when I read this? But now to put it in the context of Yes, it's true. If you were exposed to seeing something like that on TV and it triggered a a chemical release in your body, of course, there's that relationship between that chemical release, your feeling, your sexuality, everything. And it's all tied in together, right? It's an experience of just being human in this world and and being exposed to all these different things. Mm -hmm. So 
Thank you for reminding me of that. I don't know if I'm ready to ever show those to my girls yet because they're still teenagers, but for sure. Um, one I day I want to make taking notes because it sounds like something they could use for their self-love session later on. <laughs> well, exactly. And I swear that like, if you read these books, you don't need anybody else even. You're just like, I'm fine on my own. And then I remember years and years later, a girlfriend of mine who has a very healthy sex life, um, and she said to me, we were laughing one night. She's like, oh yeah, before I have sex, you know, with my husband, I just pull out my Rolodex of fantasies and I flip through them and whichever one is the one that I'm like, hits me like, that's the one I'm going with. And I just love that she said that because it was a perfect visual for, you know, how you flip through your Rolodex and you're like, this is the one I'm using right now and going with. So do we yeah. even have Rolodexes anymore, though? I know. <laughs> For people who are listening who don't know what a Rolodex is, Google it. <laughs> but um, so I love that you, yeah, thanks for reminding me all about that. So let's dive into, so you have these two books, which you've written one of them. Have you written the second one? I'm I'm just starting the second one. Yeah, the, I'm just starting the second one. I've kind of got maybe six in my head and this is all because i used to give this talk well originally at sfu i gave you know two or three half an hour talks one was called um um uh, one was about female ejaculation and then one was called hot sex tips for guys from dykes which was very well attended <laughs> okay say sorry could you slow down and can you please say those two titles again because those are brilliant oh well the first one was um was about female ejaculation mm -hmm. um which i changed to ejaculation because it's not about jack it's about jane oh, ejaculation <laughs> i like that that was part of the workshop and um and that was women's only because I knew that if I was going to hit a topic like that, that there were a lot of women that would like to have it with just women at that at that era. Um, and then the other one was um, hot sex tips uh, for guys from dykes. <laughs> so explain that one just a little bit more. Like my brain is like going, okay, I think I understand why you want the hot sex tips to come from lesbians, dykes, anybody who is, you know probably gay right well I think I think I and I don't know I mean we we postered that in the boys bathrooms and we got such a huge lineup outside the door <laughs> um but um I I think it's just because you know and it was it was an extremely taboo title at that time like just totally. you know Instagram would never have let me post that <laughs> they probably wouldn't let you do it now <laughs> Luckily, we had this, this sweet little gay guy from the group who took it to the boys' bathrooms and put it up everywhere for us. Um, but I, I suppose, and the reason I did that was because I knew that, you know, that was going to be the tone. I just wanted to be really straightforward conversations, so to speak, straightforward. Um, I just wanted it to be... They knew it was going to be funny, a little bit tongue in cheek. It was going to be hot and it was going to be coming from people who knew what they were talking about. Not just, you know, um, like now some people won't listen to me because I'm a doctor and they have opinions about what doctors think or whatever. I almost should use the old title. <laughs> but um, um, the, what 
um, the queer community has had to do to unlearn so much about even just like who they're even allowed to make love to or who they're allowed mm. to be attracted to, especially in the 90s. Um, the, the unpeeling of the societal onion that that took um, really had them question a lot about like what we were being taught about sexuality and people would say well like what do lesbians even do like who's the guy and who's the girl and all they could imagine because all we talked about for sex was intercourse was somebody strapping something on to have intercourse with somebody else because that's what was missing was the other half of the right. equation um, they had no idea that outer course and and clitoral stimulation with like an active set of fingers or hands or whatever on the inside could do an incredibly good job and sometimes a better job and what I was teaching the boys back then was that you know something going in and out and in and out like this isn't going to stimulate all the parts of the vagina as much as something that can have dexterity and the thing that has dexterity is your fingers and that's both on the inside and the outside and you need two of them two sources going at the same time to get most women physically to where they are if they aren't like uh, able to bring themselves there mentally which is true for many many women yeah. so um, especially those who have been traumatized and I wish we had time to talk about that too because that's a, that's probably the subject of a whole other book that I could write but um um, you know, when your fantasies are locked into something that society told you is bad and wrong, but you were too young to even know it was bad and wrong. And now every time you have the same feelings you had when you were little or, or, or when those things were happening to you and you know them to be bad and wrong, but you're having them with the person that you're supposed to be with. Now you're just confused. And how are you yeah. supposed to reach orgasm in your brain? If you've got like, I'm not supposed to like this. I'm not supposed to like this going on. So you really oh, need someone to help you unlearn what society did to you after the trauma because they didn't know how to cope with it almost to free yourself from that if you've had that kind of trauma but I'm, I'm off on a little tangent but um it's a I good have... it's a good but it's really important for any woman any woman man any gender right and so please I there's one place I just have to jump in now to say this is that I know I have made reference to men and women a lot and and I apologize for doing that it's um, it, it's all genders of all types, any, anyone, and the whole human species follows into this, even though you might hear me say men and women. So I do apologize for that for any listeners out there. Um, but, but it is really important for people to understand this, that if there was, you know, and for a lot of people, it doesn't have to be a, a direct intercourse that was the trauma, sexual trauma. Like there's a lot of other ways that women are violated or women, men, all genders are violated um, sexually at a young age. And a lot of people uh, don't realize, like what you said earlier, is that, you know, one in four um, females that, in, is that right? Females are um, sexually assaulted and, and raped in this day and age. Like as we're having, doing, having this podcast, women around the world are being um, raped right now. Men as well, um, boys as well. The numbers aren't as, and, and obviously all genders are being sexually assaulted right now, but it is important to know that there is a way through the trauma. There's a way mm -hmm. to come out on the other side with having 
healthy sexual feelings and healthy sexual experiences. You just need to work with the right person. And so it's not to say, well, I can never be sexual again. I can never, you know, have a healthy sex life. You can, but you do need to work with the right person through that. So I just want to touch base on that because it's not going off on a tangent. It's all part of this conversation. Right. Of course. And, uh, you know, it's probably one of the most important parts of the conversation, really, and all the things you're saying about um, all-inclusiveness with the genders as well. It's actually, it's very hard to uh, tell the people I think need to hear it most um, without, you know, making the conversation alienating to others at some points, right? So Mm -hmm. that is one of the challenges of talking to roomfuls of people or putting something out on the internet nowadays, which is way bigger than the rooms of people we used to, we used to present to. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, We have to definitely do two shows because there's so many topics Mm -hmm. here that we can cover. And I have a feeling, and I know just from experience, like anytime we talk, like we could talk about health so the cows come home. But when we talk about sexual health, that's when everybody is like, I'm there, like sign me up. I want to be there. Cause it's something that is, it is a lot of people aren't comfortable like coming out and saying, well, you know, I'm having an issue here. I'm going to go hire a counselor, a therapist, a doctor, or just anybody to be able to express, you know, their feelings to you here, you know, I, I know you'll hear somebody say, oh, my, like one girlfriend will be like, I orgasm like so easily, like at the drop of a hat. And then meanwhile, there's the, another woman hearing, you know, oh, well, that doesn't happen to me. So there's something wrong with me. And it's, you know, there's a whole spectrum and there's nothing wrong with anything of where we're at. But we do have to start talking about, just like Jocelyn Elders came out and started talking about it, just like you're chatting about it. Um, you know, Kim Anami, I mentioned her to you. She was my business coach. She's now the vagina weight list lifter and you know she talks about it and everybody has their own perspective on it and it's important to learn as much as you can about it we have this one life and it's such a beautiful topic and there's so much joy just like there's joy in taking the best poo of your life right there's just like <laughs> no there is like i seriously almost have orgasms when you know i have the best bowel movements they're amazing and if you don't have bowel movements like that please call me cuz we need to work on your digestion okay <laughs> there's the plug for absolutely yes. So yeah, it's, it's such an important topic. And, and that's why I said I want to talk to Oprah and Ellen, because I think the misunderstanding is that we talk about it as if it's this other thing than our natural drive. Right. And um, there's this belief that procreation is a natural drive. We understand that, but we don't seem to understand that, um, that sexual pleasure is part of that drive and that we are still allowed to have that part of the drive if we aren't going to have the procreation um and and certainly not every time like thank god we don't have to have a baby every time we you know (laughs) but um um like the way it helps people just get through their their daily life it's a normal part of your health and if you're not getting it, and you know, I live in Whistler, as you know, so I see a lot of young people who are here for their season to work and so on. They're getting drunk or high and going to the bar and getting late. And they come to see me because I got to tell them they got, you know, gonorrhea or whatever. And what I, and they're so scared to hear what I have to say, but they always like hug me and they're so happy at the end because basically what I'll say is, look, 
you're just really lucky that this is the one you got because it's 100% treatable with this little set of pills. And what it's telling you is that you got to be a little bit careful because there's other things that are less easy to treat, including pregnancy. And, um, and, and really that you got to rethink what you're thinking about sex, because mm -hmm. if you're out there like responding to other people's needs for intercourse or what you think is your need for intercourse, when what your need really is, is a little dose of dopamine up here that you can provide for yourself at home with zero risk of procreation, zero risk of unwanted pregnancy, zero risk of wanted pregnancy. So obviously you need to have intercourse if you actually want a baby or you yeah. need a baby or whatever else. Um, but, um, um, and, and zero risk of STDs, but also that it teaches you like just how much love and care and, and sexiness you can have for yourself and just to be able to say like i am hot and i deserve to get off and i'm going to do that to me because nobody else can give it to me as good and it should be yeah. that nobody else can give it to you as good or you should go back and practice some more and i'll say make sure you're doing it at least 20 times you know just a random number but like i'm just trying to keep them at home for a minute. <laughs> You know, do it at least 20 times until you really know what turns you on and what doesn't so that you can really tell them because there ain't no one who should be putting their penis inside you until you have come because the chances of you coming once their penis is inside has gone very close to zero. So mm -hmm. really, the people with the clitorises should be coming before the people with the penises if we want every one of those people. Um, that's my gender fee version. Yeah, I love it. I love that it was perfect. <laughs> Um, um, and I, you know, I'm very involved in the queer community, so that it's super important to be able to talk that way, but that it's so important for people of all genders to reach that orgasm. And, and we know that intercourse is like 99.9% .9 sure for people with penises and very close to about 18% in a lifetime, which means 18% of women report that from intercourse alone, they sometimes can reach orgasm. Like this, these are very bad stats. Wow. You, all you have to do is take your self-love skills into the bedroom, put your hand down there yourself. Nobody else should be driving your steering wheel. You know what's going on. You know how to get it there. You know that she wants it exactly how she wants it, exactly where she wants it, and exactly when she wants it. So she's not going to, she doesn't want someone else to be going at a rhythm that isn't correct. Totally. <laughs> your mind's going to stop you. So you learn your own rhythm and you do it yourself while you're having intercourse. Free your partner's hands for your breasts or your face or whatever else they could be using it for and, um, and use your own hands on yourself or a vibrator or whatever makes it work for you so that you're having orgasm preferably before the penis comes in or while the or you're so close to coming then you have the penetration during that because we all know how long that's going to last it's not their fault it's not called premature ejaculation because if you had already if you're already on your second or third orgasm by the time they put their penis inside is that premature ejaculation it doesn't matter if they last two seconds you're already coming right, right. it's only premature if you're not going to get there because of of that and I just want to touch on the vaginal orgasm thing because I'm very concerned about it as many feminist scientists and doctors are. It was kind of discussed as a way to reinvent um, intercourse as the
primary and only form of sexuality and and gave women the goal that they're supposed to have some kind of vaginal orgasm um, um, it, to be a, a full-fledged woman <laughs> and um, and many people uh, say they experience it many people say they don't but we what we do know is that the nerves that are analogous to the penis are not in the vagina per se there's like gaps there's the bulbs of the vagina that pass messages to the crooks of the vagina that pass messages to the brain etc but really it's the rhythmic uh, repetition um, of activity at the actual clitoral nerves that's real that run right alongside the hood of the clitoris that are really going to get people with clitorises there and um, that there should like have the power to have you come from the couch or the bed that you're on and fall onto the floor and not know how you got there like it should be mind-boggling the experience and if it isn't then it possibly is that you aren't actually having the kind of orgasms that's giving you the dope the dopamine at the brain that makes you go like, whoa, what just happened to me? That right. feeling should come. And and the one thing we know is that both the clitoris and, and the penis have a very specific rhythm during orgasm of 0 0.8 seconds repeated um, uh, rhythmic contractions. And those are the ones that are going to start the cascade for the neurotransmitters in the brain. So, um, don't let anyone tell you that you're supposed to come like the Hollywood girls. And please, Hollywood, please, actresses, refuse that scene. Say, I will do this scene if you let me put my hand down there or his. Like, right. don't agree to do a sex scene where the clitoris is not involved because you are promoting the false belief that people can come that way. And it's just very rare. Yeah. And if you just can imagine that, you know, for people who are listening and for all the people who could have ever listened to this, that if they had known this, their relationships could be so much different. Number one, communication would be outstanding, right? Like women, um, you know, men, all genders would be saying, this is how I want it. This is what I want. This is what I want you to do. And if you can do that in the bedroom, then you can do that outside of the bedroom. You know, like, honey, quit throwing your socks beside the hamper like you got you know we have to be able to communicate and say what it is that we desire what it is that we need what it is that we love and if you can't do that right then you know how healthy is your relationship so i mean it really is a good testament to the health of your relationship that you can tell your partner what it is that you want in the bedroom um or the bathroom or wherever you decide and the health of your one night stand i mean if all you're oh, gonna one, exactly one stand, communicate about it totally no 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 no. that ain't going inside <laughs> i am nowhere near close enough for you to be able to manifest unless you've got some miracle manta chia multiple full orgasm um penis i'd be very surprised and yeah we're not going there yet be like the the gay couples who like know that pretty much everyone in the room also wants some pleasure out of this deal 
Right. Yeah, no, exactly. It would just be truly tremendous that, you know, if we can change the conversation and, you know, teach our children that this is, um, you know, what is important to understand is that you can please yourself first before you even go out there and have your first sexual experience. I mean, I know I'm going to go out there and tell my daughters that right now. Um, you know, we talk about this openly and, and it's been nice because, at the beginning when I first started chatting with them and you know, you can speak to this as well. I know my girls didn't want to hear it. They're like, mom, stop talking. I don't want to talk about this. But as they've gotten older and because I've constantly brought up the subject mm -hmm. and in a way that's just, you know, I'm curious, I'm just sharing. There is no, I'm not trying to lecture you. I'm not trying to preach. I'm not trying to teach, but it's just that we'll always talk about it openly. Um, even just, you know, when the kid girl, like when the girls were little and they were showering and they would feel the shower head for the first time. And, you know, just to be like, does that feel good? Okay. Not make a big deal out of it, you know, but just to be able to not condemn any of it. And, um, and then what it's done in our relationships is that my girls now tell me like all sorts of things, which is sometimes a little too much. I'm like, I don't need to know, you know, as they're, you know, my oldest has a boyfriend now and, you know, and it's great because she's like, you know, we can have these really intense discussions and, and they're healthy and they're good. And I hope that we continue to have that because it's so important that this, that, you know, and we talk about it in front of, you know, their dad as well, like my husband, because they have to know that it's okay. It doesn't have to just be private talk all and just amongst involved. <laughs> all parents need to, right? Because there's also these different perspectives and everybody can be learning all at the same time as well. So it's important that we do chat about this. So for, and, and so what I want to end this show on, cause I know we've been together for almost two hours here. Um, and I'm sure there's people who are like, keep talking, like, <laughs> let's get specific and let's get detailed. But I love the point that you brought up about how can we use COVID isolation to revolutionize our sex life. <laughs> and so this is awesome because I'm sure nobody's done a podcast anywhere on this. So this is going to be the first. So let's talk about that. Yes. yes. Some of my posts have been about that. You know, I have to, I have to look at the bright side of things and I have to find ways and Obviously, I'm a proponent of um, of the human body meeting all of its needs, and people have been in isolation. And I've seen people posting about craving other people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and you can probably tell from the tone of this podcast that I have a firm belief that we have um, a fair bit to unlearn about the way our society puts out sexuality and a fair bit to learn about how our bodies actually function and how to use them to their full potential. And just like I would tell those teenagers that are coming in for the, um, the STD check and having to get a little bit of bad news from me, that it's an opportunity to remind ourselves that actually there is a way to make love to other people that involves making love to yourself and involves self-love and complete respect and mm. something that you're not going to go home and regret and something that's going to keep a relationship alive and loving and well for a really long time with one or several people or however you want to do this. I don't care. But the thing that I thought I could promote during this time is just some self-reflection um, about what it is that we bring in to our sexuality with other people. And is it is it society-based, is it media-based, or is it 
the human animal based. Mm. And it's almost like I want to show everyone exactly how similar the clitoris and the penis are so they understand just how the pleasure functions are created equally among the genders. So that, and that the brains are the same. And, you know, in 2017, we, um, they did an MRI research of women making love to themselves and also um, getting pleasured by other people and what was happening in their brains. And you can just see the areas of the brain illuminating during climax, et cetera. So we do are starting to get the evidence of the stuff we've been talking about. But in isolation time, like make love to yourself, like find out who you are, what you like about you. Don't just, don't just say, I love me. See if you can actually love me. And, and I, and I mean that sexually, but I also mean that spiritually and physically. And, you know, we're so hard on ourselves, how our bodies are supposed to look, how our faces are supposed to look, how, you know, like are our labia menorah big or small, like it doesn't matter. We're all animals. We're all created the way we're created. And if you don't have self love, um, like women are pretty good at this <laughs> socially. We've been, we've been raised to be able to completely not love ourselves and really love everybody else. <laughs> yeah, for and sure. We've been, we've been raised to be able to make love to everybody else and never make love to ourselves. But I promise you that if you love yourself, your ability to be loved is enhanced. And if you make love to yourself, your ability to make love to other people is enhanced and their ability to make love to you. Like if you just, if they just know what to do or if you just know what to do and they see that you are empowered sexually, it is so hot to have a partner who is able to um, uh, guide you to their, the map of their bodies and say what they need. So use your isolation time if you're still in it. And if we're out of the whole COVID thing by the time this podcast comes out, make yourself some isolation time schedule it mamas like i know you got kids i know what it's yeah. like you tell your partner like look i need to work on my sex drive and i need to do it by myself tonight because it hasn't i haven't made love to me in a really long time start those conversations normalize that you really need to love yourself and you really need to make love to yourself if you're going to have the kind of um access to your biology your biochemistry and your physiology that is innate in you i don't care if you think it was created in you or if it evolved in you it is there there ain't no god out there that created something and didn't want you to use it all right yeah. <laughs> like you've got the parts it's it is almost a sin to not use them and whoever told you otherwise didn't understand that and they were worried that you would not be available to your partners if you used it up. Well, you ain't using it up. You're, you're driving the machine. So mm. you go drive that machine and you teach other people in bed that you'd like to drive the machine while they drive theirs. And let's drive together. Let's go on a big road trip and just reset, hit that reset button. We were talking about for the planet, hit the reset button for your sex life, turn it around, bring it in, bring it all back home, teach yourself about you, make love to you, figure out how sexy you are to yourself so that you can be sexy to other people if you want, or you know what, if you end up just wanting to be with you all the time, I get it. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, sometimes that's where it's at. Um, but, yeah. And then connection doesn't become about need. 
connection becomes about want. And when connection is about want and you actually do want because you got that drive, it is way hotter than when it's about need. Totally. So bring it back to the point where you are satisfying yourself. Go take care of your own self and your own needs. You know, I'm, I'm in my forties and um, I've got, I've got 40, uh, almost 50 years experience taking care of me. It doesn't matter how long I've been with my partner. I can promise you that I have more experience than they do. Right. Yeah. And even if I just started masturbating last week, I probably have more experience <laughs> because once you find out how good it is, it, you know, it goes pretty quick from there, but I'm not just talking about masturbating. I'm talking about all my needs. All so you got to take care of yourself and self isolation time is like, Oh my God, I need this. I need that. And I can't access it. What if you can, what mm. if you can access everything you need within you? And then you just get what you want from other people when, when the time is right, then you're choosing people more wisely. You're choosing to, um, to share intimacy with people more wisely you're like, you know when to stop and say, hey, 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 whoa, like that's that's not gonna get me where it's gonna get you and um, we're, we're in this together, so can we try this instead? Like you gotta be able to have the confidence to be involved in a way that works for you and doesn't make you go home and go, why did I do that? Why do I keep doing this? I don't nice. wanna hear a girl say that anymore, that's enough. Yeah, that is incredible advice that is in you know brilliant tips the beautiful thing is it's free it doesn't have to cost anything it doesn't pollute the planet you're not wasting any resources it literally is just time with yourself and so you know it's an amazing place way to wrap it up because through covid you know we've seen all of the different ways that you can you know support yourself through it so there's you know a lot of people are returning to meditation gardening cooking eating well exercising and this really is the way to tie it all in together it's that you know making love to yourself and we need to share that with more people so um we're gonna have to back have you back on the show again dr teresa wood it is how to make love to yourself and well that's what that is literally that yeah because i'm sure i'm leaving everybody hanging right now they're like okay well how do i do it how do i do it like you know i try it and it doesn't work or Totally. And so fantasy she's talking about and they block me and yeah. Exactly. So I would love to have you on the show again, actually really soon so that we, people don't have to wait a long time. We're not going to keep you waiting, everybody. We're going to make sure that this <laughs> happens for you. And, and I want to know too, like I actually, I'll just leave everyone with this in their mind. It's okay. So every time you think about this podcast, you're going to think about my clitoris um, or clitoris. <laughs> But I just discovered, I read it in a book somewhere, but I just discovered that the left side of my clitoris is like, it's like literally out of this world. Like you just touch it and it's like, you light up everywhere. And I'm like the left side versus the right side versus the top versus the bottom. I had no idea. Like, you know, and I thought I was somebody who's, you know, well-versed in this. And I'm just like, I read in a book and they just said, spend more time on the left side. And I was like, what is going on? It's like magic down there. So anyway, I'll leave that with you guys just so you can 
have that, but we're going to have you on the show again because we need to get into the how-tos and the like 10 steps or the, you know, like whatever it is that's going to help people really get out there. I want to leave people with exercises and homework um, and to do that as well. And so how do people get in touch with you if they want to book you to speak? Obviously, like whether it's virtual for now and in public when all of this um, lets up, but how do they get in touch with you to learn more? Uh, probably the best way to get in touch with me is through my website. So it's simple. It's www.drteresawood.com. Teresa has no H in it. So it's T-E-R-E-S-A-W-O-O-D. And the doctor is just D-R. So um, if you go to uh, drteresawood.com, um, on that website, there'll be you know a way to email me or there's there's the contact page and that explains how to do it. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, although honestly, I haven't really figured out. <laughs> I gave up on Twitter like and I'm, years ago. I'm really quite brand new to social media. If there's someone out there that wants to come work with me and be my social media person, um, go to my website and contact me. I'm I kind of just old enough that I missed that boat. I was busy with med school and having twins and all that. So um, I would love uh, someone who could um, work with me on those things. But yeah, I would love to um, hear from you to give some talks. If, you, um, if you're a publisher and you want your hand on my book series, um, I did have a couple of offers. I'm looking for something bigger because I, um, I need this to... I need to change the world with this and I've been working on it for 25 years and, um, um, and I, I want it to go big. I want the opportunity to talk to Oprah and Ellen who have such huge influence about just how important it is to de-taboo our physiology. That is enough, enough is enough. We need to talk about this stuff. So you can reach me on my website um, and also Facebook and Instagram is the same. It's D-R-T-E-R-E-S-A-W-O-D, Dr. Teresa Wood, on all of those things. There's a, there's a page, there's an Instagram, and, um, and there's a web page. And there's a mailing list. If you join the mailing list on the web page, that's how you can stay. First, you'll get very rare posts from me, but they'll be um, hot and fun and delicious. <laughs> um, um, and then um, you'll get announcements of if I'm going to do an online course or an online talk or um, or an in-person talk, because those are very fun as well, just to be able to be in the same room as 500 people going, oh my God, she just said that. Oh my God, she just said that. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> so Amazing. I love it. Thank you so much for um, unraveling and uncovering the this dialogue that just needs to happen. And I love it because once we just start talking about it, we just feel so free and it's liberating. It's exciting. So it opens us up to talk, be able to talk actually about so many other things as well. So I, I love that you have done that for our audience. Um, and we're, and I have a suggestion for all of our listeners. So in addition to sharing the podcast with others, especially all your friends out there that, you know, need to hear this, um, I have a suggestion for you and that's to actually just go and DM that's direct message 
Oprah and Ellen and any other, you know, you know, people that inspire you and just tell them about, you know, Dr. Teresa would just be like, there's a woman you need to have on your show. And that's how these things happen. We just have to introduce these people to these celebrities, these influencers out there, because this topic, especially, and I've never said this on our podcast before, um, like to go DM our guests, even though you can, but for this particular topic, I just think it's really important that we need to really bring it to light um, because we do have to do a lot of work, just like we need to reverse the conversation around you know, regenerative health and chronic disease. And we need to reverse this conversation around our sexual health as well. And we need to develop it in a healthy way. So please go out there and do that. And let's get Dr. Teresa Wood on the Oprah show and on Ellen and on every other show as well. So we can start to raise a really healthy generation of humans out there. Amen. <laughs> That's right. Okay, sister, we are done. Okay, thank you so much for having me. I love seeing you and talking with you. They're just delicious and fun. And everyone out there, try not to talk, think about uh, Nicolette's clitoris <laughs> the whole time you're making love to yourself. But you know, if it comes in, well, you can't help it now. <laughs> It'll be fun. It'll, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, good. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Teresa Wood. We are definitely going to have her back on the show because we only just touched the surface and now it's time to go deep. No pun intended, but it is time to go deep with Dr. Teresa Wood to learn more about what you can do to liberate your sex drive, to let it come free so that you can really live a life that is fully complete where sex is also part of your health program. So please share this podcast with others, share all of our episodes that you loved, write to us and let us know who you'd like for us to have on the show, who we can interview. And if you have a healing hero story where you have used food as medicine to free yourself from your chronic degenerative disease, we wanna showcase you and your story and learn about everything that you did to take your health into your own hands, turn your health around so you can reclaim your life. So write to us, let us know, because we'd love to interview you for our podcast. And thanks for listening and being here with us today. Bye for now, everyone. And of course, before I sign off, I just want to thank all of the people behind the scenes who make this show possible. That is Becky, who is doing all of our editing and show notes, getting it up on our website, posting it live on iTunes and Spotify and all the different areas where you can listen to this show. I also want to thank our team behind the scenes. We have Pierre, my beautiful husband who runs our cafes and makes it possible for me to do this show. Mary Lynn Tremblay, who runs our retreat center and manages our organic garden on our farmland here in Pemberton, BC, where we host retreats. And if you ever want to do a retreat with us, we do private retreats, large group retreats. And right now we're limiting it to groups of six and under. So if you want to organize a retreat, write to us and we can make that happen for you. Um, and in the meantime, I want everybody to stay well, eat well, and do well. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. <laughs>